This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas State Technical College's Money Back Guarantee Program reinforces our commitment to prepare and place highly skilled, technically competent students in the workforce. Learn more at tstc.edu. And the Beer Alliance of Texas. Direct-to-consumer sales destroys jobs and hammers Texas-owned businesses across the alcoholic beverage industry. Find out more at beeralliance.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TripCast. My name is James Barragan. I am filling in for Matthew Watkins this week. Um, and this week with me on the podcast is Kate McGee. Hello, thanks for having me. And Patrick Svitek. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining the cast. Um, so this week, I want to talk about two things. Uh, one is the uh, the brouhaha that has ensued after Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick um, sort of start, started talking about taking away tenure in higher education. Um, so we'll have Kate McKee, Kate McGee, our higher education reporter, talking about that and how faculty uh, representatives and university presidents have uh, responded to that across the board. Um, and after that, we'll have a conversation with Patrick Svitek and, and Kate will also chime in on um, the primaries uh, on Tuesday. Lots of uh, action happening, obviously, in the last final days of that. And so we'll just have a, a little bit of a rundown of some of the biggest races and, and what's going on with that. Um, but first, we'll eat our vegetables and um, talk about um, this, this new uh, proposal from Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick to do away with tenure, uh, basically um, giving the reason that, you know, faculty at universities and public universities in Texas are teaching critical race theory. Of course, the legislature has banned that um, at in K through 12 public education in the state last year. Um, and now he's moving on and trying to tackle that issue um, at, at the higher education level. So Kate, can you just sort of give us a rundown of sort of how this all got started and what kind of impact it might have um, if, if this sort of is, is a big topic for the next legislative session? Sure. Um, you know, eliminating tenure or proposing to eliminate or change tenure is not entirely new in higher ed. You know, even state lawmakers last year had put up bills to kind of change the way tenure is, uh, works in the state. But Patrick's proposal uh, last week was definitely the most extreme so far that we've seen. Um, you know, it really started when the UT Austin Faculty Council passed this resolution last week saying that they, uh, professors, should have the power to decide what is taught in the classroom around race, racism, and critical race theory. Um, Patrick responded uh, via Twitter saying, you know, we don't need, you know, calling the professors loony Marxists and saying, you know, this is why we're going to ban critical race theory teaching in higher ed. Um, and then followed that up on the, later that week by laying out this proposal, not just to make uh, teaching critical race theory a grounds for revoking tenure, but completely changing and eliminating tenure moving forward in the state and saying 
all new hires would not have the ability to have tenure. And uh, those who do have tenure now would have to be reviewed annually versus how it works right now at most universities, they do an annual six year review. You know, a lot of the reaction was, you know, kind of shock and anger from professors saying that this would fundamentally, you know, kind of hurt not only scholarship and research, but hurt Texas universities on the national stage. They won't, you know, why would a professor come to Texas uh, and work here if they don't have the protection of tenure? And Patrick's press conference, you know, like he got a lot of criticism for just fundamentally misunderstanding or mischaracterizing what tenure is. You know, tenure doesn't mean that a professor can never be fired ever again. You know, professors can be terminated for good cause. There are, you know, or extraordinary circumstances. And we've seen that in the state, um, even this year, you know, tenure has been, um, tenured professors have been fired at, at schools. Um, tenure is really supposed to be this protection to allow teachers to teach or research their subject matter without outside influence, without political influence coming in and telling them how they should be doing their jobs or what they should be teaching or studying. And so for many faculty who were outraged last week, Patrick's proposal was really an example of why tenure needs to exist because they don't think that we should be having you know, law lawmakers be able to decide a particular, you know, study like critical race theory is off the, you know, off the books or off the table to be discussed at public universities. And part of that, I think the the person you spoke to from Southern Methodist SMU um, talked about that, you know, that this is why we have tenure, because we, we don't want the political winds affecting, you know, what we're teaching in higher ed. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the response from Jay Hartzell you uh, from from UT um, and sort of he had I think similar concerns but didn't directly address I think Patrick's Patrick's presser but he, he sort of had similar sentiments about this in in the in the scope of this and, and if you can talk about this too I mean it does seem to be very clearly a political issue here uh, rather than anything about you know the way things are being taught or, you know, a specific problem with a professor. It does seem to be a political issue here. Yeah, I mean, Hartzell basically said in his letter um, that removing tenure would cripple Texas, Texas University's ability to recruit and retain professors. And that, you know, with prof high ranking professors comes research dollars and comes the um, ability to have, you know, Carnegie One tier one status as being a high, very high quality research university. There's this whole Carnegie status um, of research that universities are always fighting to try and get to the highest level, which is Carnegie One status. You know, we have almost over 20 universities in this state that are Carnegie One. And so that, you know, eliminating or making it difficult to bring in high level, a high ranking professors would hurt Texas's ability to be able to, you know, call itself a Carnegie One research university. And so he was really taking the stance of, you know, this is going to impact how we look on the national stage, how we can compete with other universities in California or in New York or elsewhere to be able to bring in some of the top minds. Um, I think, you know, for Patrick and his base that he is speaking to, you know, there is already the assumption or belief made that 
these universities in Texas or beyond are these liberal bastions of professors who are trying to indoctrinate students. And so this this move uh, on Patrick's part is a, you know, speaks directly to his base to be able to kind of fight against what they think is happening at universities uh, across the state. And so regardless of, you know, the kind of clear cut real life impacts that this might have for Hartzell or at Texas A&M or any university, it's still a win for Patrick in the sense of he's able to play to to the beliefs of his base. Right, right. And I think I think he actually used the word indoctrinate in, in some of his statements for, for what the professors were doing. But just to the, the real life impact, just to, to sort of zero in on that, I mean, it, it, it would, I think, make universities in Texas less competitive because by and large, I think professors like tenure. They like having that job security as who wouldn't. Um, and if other universities uh, let's say a public university, the number one public university in the country, like UCLA, for example, uh, where which is my alma mater. I can't imagine uh, why you brought that one up. <laughs> <laughs> let's say they're offering some of these like very uh, distinguished professors tenure, and and then UT or Texas A and M no longer has the option to offer tenure because of potentially this legislation, then that puts Texas universities and Texas higher education at a certain disadvantage. They won't be able to any longer recruit the professors. But then I think one of, or maybe multiple people you spoke to also made the case that that also harms Texas students because they won't have the option or the, the yeah, yeah, the option to be taught by some of these like higher tier professors. Um, but that, I think to your point, Patrick is making the calculus that it's politically good for him and uh, the, the, the actual effect on Texas higher education be, be damned, I, I think, right? Am I, I'm, am I reading that correctly? And, and talk yeah. about a little bit about like, you know, Texas I think had a more measured response as well. And so people have to be careful because he's the guy that's basically going to fund them in the Senate. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the fact that we didn't see this huge swath of support for Patrick's proposal immediately after shows that there are um, the real life ramifications of doing something like this might outweigh, um, you know, supporting a, a measure this extreme. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Abbott said kind of just said on a conservative talk show uh, this week that it was something he would need to look at and explore further. Others, you know, Dade Phelan didn't comment when we asked him. Um, even some pre other presidents at universities came, gave a little bit of a more measured response than Hartzell, who really came out defending the practice. Um, but, you know, I think the, the when you have a university system that is not able to attract like the top minds in the country, not even to teach students, but also give students research opportunities to be able to become, you know, to further their own research and their own ability to to learn from these people. Um, you know, you are also the, there's real life ramifications on the state's economy and how, you know, the state is able to compete you know, for national grants and national awards that um, from the federal government from elsewhere. And so there is just this larger ramification that I think would need to be, uh, I think would take a lot of um, work to get it through uh, the legislative session. You know, on Friday or last week, Patrick said that um, Senator Creighton, the chair of the Senate Higher Ed Committee, 
supported the 10-year proposal, when I reached out to him, he was a little bit more measured and he didn't support Patrick's specific plan outright. You know, he said it was worth, you know, looking at how to possibly change how tenure works and more supported the ban on teaching critical race theory, which is, you know, the easier kind of buzzword politically to, to support these days. But even, uh, you know, just showing that it's a lot more complicated than just eliminating this, this policy um, outright would be. Well, you know, to, to our reporting from last week, Patrick, I could put Brandon Creighton in a tough spot if he's not willing to go to go along with exactly what uh, Dan Patrick is Dan Patrick is saying. That might uh, get him in trouble. So he's got to be careful. But I did I did think that it was interesting that you know Abbott gave a basically no comment comment. Basically, I'm going to take a look at it. Feeling didn't give a comment again to our reporting from last week. I think that probably shows that there's there's maybe not full support for that for that idea. And then the last thing that um, uh, that sort of you were getting at, Kate, is um, I think even though the critical race theory is what he's targeting, and maybe these professors who are teaching critical race theory or support the idea of teaching critical race theory, if you eliminate tenure, I mean that's going to hurt professors across the board in, in everything. And, you know, we've got the, uh, <clears throat> we got the big telescope out there and, and Big Bend and uh, people who want to do that kind of research and all kinds of, uh, you know, very um, fruitful and important research that gets done. If you take away tenure from those people, you've really put at risk um, the ability to, to do that kind of to, to do that kind of research and to attract the people who can do that kind of Thing. And I also I think what's um, in, like uh, kind of misunderstood about tenure, too, is it is a very difficult thing to get tenure. You know, people who come in with tenure, professors who are recruited with and offered a job with tenure are people who have really demonstrated their skills in a particular field. Um, but if you are starting a, as an assistant professor at a university, it usually takes six to seven years to even get considered for tenure. And then that is a mm -hmm. months long um, process as well. So it's not a guarantee. And the number of tenured professors at universities across the country has been declining over the years anyway. Um, there's even, I think, you know, an interesting kind of in the weeds thing that I think is important is most academic freedom policies at universities already state that, you know, professors have the freedom to teach the subjects they're an expert in, but they are told to be careful to introduce topics that they're not an expert in and to make sure that they don't share personal opinions. So it is not like a biology professor at UT is walking into the class and saying, you know what, we're teaching critical race theory today. Like that does not align <laughs> with how academic freedom goes. So there's a lot of misconceptions about how I think the whole idea of academic freedom and, and tenure works within the day-to-day -day aspect of, of teaching on a campus. And I think overall, there has been a conversation about, you know, we should maybe reconsider or reimagine how tenure actually works for, from, from other places, not, not Dan Patrick. So this is like an ongoing running conversation. Um, this, this proposal though, from the Lieutenant Governor does seem to be mostly politically motivated and and the overall conversation about tenure um it, it, it's quite frankly quite frankly on a on a different realm than than this proposal it seems yeah um i think the the faculty last week with that particular resolution gave um patrick an opportunity to to lay out a plan that has been discussed um or an idea to get rid of tenure that's been discussed not just in texas but elsewhere
Okay, well, I think we've covered that base. So I think now is a pretty good time to take a break and hear from our sponsors. Lone Star College plays a key role in developing a skilled workforce to keep the Texas economy strong. Find out more at lonestar.edu. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries is committed to health equity, striving to create more fair and just opportunities for all to thrive. Learn more at mhm.org. And we're back. And happy Friday before primaries to all who celebrate. Uh, we've had a pretty uh, eventful time covering the races here on the politics team at the Texas Tribune. Uh, just Thursday night, our own Patrick Svitek moderated the Republican Attorney General debate with George P. Bush, Eva Guzman, and Congressman Louis Gohmert. Um, uh, the incumbent General Paxton, the Attorney General Paxton, did did not um, did not participate in the event. Um, Patrick, I guess we'll start off right there. Um, what were some of the highlights for you from from that race? Which is truly, I mean, that's the hottest race, right, on, on, on the ballot. It's just everybody who's in politics is talking about it. That's the most interesting one, most likely to maybe go to a runoff. Yeah, there's no other statewide primary like it right now. Um, it definitely has the, the highest profile candidates, the most suspense about whether it's going to go to a runoff, and if so, who would be in the runoff, um, and the most money uh, by far. Uh, this debate uh, the other night, the big headline was the fighting between George P. Bush and, and Eva Guzman. Um, and clearly, I think they are both uh, brawling because they believe that they are within reach of that number two spot in the runoff if there is going to be one. And so you saw them go back and forth uh, from just the first minutes of the debate uh, over everything from border wall to uh, pers perceived personal attacks, uh, their records, um, their support for uh, Donald Trump. Um, so it was it was quite a brawl between those two. And I would say overwhelmingly that that was the, the main story out of the debate. Yeah, and meanwhile, uh, Congressman Gomer, who um, early on, it looked like Ken Paxton was recognizing him as his main competitor, at least with conservative voters. And, and Paxton started, you know, airing attack ads in his in his neck of the woods. Gomer, for his part, focused on, you know, uh, attacking Ken Paxton and comparing his track record there. What would you see there? Yeah, I think that, you know, Paxton has been rightfully concerned about Gomer, not necessarily because Gomer you know, has a strong chance of being the number two finisher, but because Gomert is bleeding support, siphoning support from Paxton and making it more likely that he goes to a runoff in general. And so I think that is the, the strategy in going after Gomert. Um, now, that being said, I mean, the polling suggests that, you know, it, it, there's a good chance that any of those three challengers makes the, the runoff. And so it could also be out of concern that he'd be in the runoff. But I think his interest in Gomert is mainly because Gomert is siphoning support from the, the Paxton base because he's the most politically alike him in this primary. So, um, but it, it was interesting to watch though at this debate, you know, Louis Gomert was standing in the middle and you had George P. Bush on and one side of him and even Guzman on the other side, they're just yelling back and forth, throwing bombs back and forth. And, and Louis Gomert, who usually is the, you know, the usually is the bomb thrower in politics was just kind of leaning back, watching the, the fire fly over him. Um, and in some ways kind of came off, uh, as uh, the statesman uh, on the stage. It, it was, uh, I saw that, I saw a couple of tweets to that effect. Right, right, was, which uh, don't something interesting to see. But most people, given his uh, bombastic style, uh, you know, most people would not necessarily attach that uh, label to him. And so it was It was quite a quite an irony to see him uh, project, be able to project that kind of image 
And, um, <laughs> you know, all the candidates came up to the moderators afterward and, and shook our hands and everything. And I'll tell you, Louis Gobert seemed the most pleased with how that debate went. It's <laughs> 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 so, just a spaghetti fl flying everywhere. And he's yeah. staying clean. Yeah, I did see a, I did see a tweet to that effect that like, uh, you know, Louis Gohmert looked like the adult in the room, which of course, if you, if you, if you know, Louis Gohmert's sort of history of making sort of wild statements, sometimes it was, it was interesting for, for him to take that role. Uh, Patrick, one of the things we saw this morning uh, after last night's debate was uh, Paxton coming out with an Eva Guzman uh, attack ad. Uh, thought that was interesting. Uh, what may that indicate? Uh, kind of he's turning his he's turning his sort of gunpowder on her now. Well, I think you also got to assess it in the context of George P. Bush putting out a uh, hard negative attack ad against Eva Guzman earlier this week. I think both those campaigns clearly see her rising at the end here and are trying to keep her out of the runoff. Um, from Bush's perspective, that means uh, she may be overtaking him for the number two spot. Um, and then from Paxton's perspective, that may mean that he sees himself going to runoff and she is... Uh, his most likely number two finisher to go to the runoff. And I think if you look at the way Paxton has talked about this way, this race publicly, he wants a runoff with Bush. I think that that provides the biggest contrast. Um, you know, I know things don't always cut this easily in Republican politics these days, but that would be kind of a conservative versus moderate matchup, at least in Paxton's view. Now, George P. Bush is certainly more conservative than some of his, his uh, famous family members, um, but I think that to some Republican primary voters, they would still view him as the moderate, at least maybe stylistically or um, just politically in, in that in that context. And so I think I think Paxton is, is eager for if he has to do a runoff to do Bush because he believes it's the most vivid contrast. Um, now, uh, you know, a runoff with Guzman would be problematic for Paxton, I think, because she's been the biggest financial threat of all three of his challengers. You know, she's backed by Texans for lawsuit reform and, and between that group and its allied donors. They've plowed millions and millions behind her. And that's, you know, why she's been able to air TV ads for so long and really build up her name ID. And so, you know, Paxton is probably looking at, at Guzman and saying, I don't want to have to go up against that much money in a runoff. I'd much rather go up against someone who so far has been a, a inferior fundraiser to Guzman, Bush, who also provides the most uh, vivid political contrast uh, if we go head to head. I think she also offers, I mean, she's a, she's a Latina, she's a woman, she offers something very, very different from, from, from Paxton. So people who maybe are fed up with Paxton, but are not willing to vote for another Bush, uh, may be interested in voting for Eva Guzman, uh, because, you know, she offers something different. And yesterday, right. she, she tried to make a point of like, hitting all the conservative talking points, you know, uh, bashing undocumented immigrants, uh, talking about her experience with her father being killed by an undocumented immigrant, uh, the border wall, her supporter of President Trump, all, all the talking points were hit, I think. Yeah, I think she would be a, a challenging, a more challenging <laughs> runoff opponent for Paxton than, than Bush. Yeah. That's called that's called for you for you kids learning at home. That's called peaking at the right time. Looks like a, a right. Eva Guzman's doing a, a variation of the ludicrous uh, early two thousands hit, and she's coming for the number two spot. Um, <laughs> moving on to <laughs> moving on to the governor. <laughs> <laughs> moving, moving on to the governor's race. Um, the, the 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 Republican primary for governor. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about this uh, with Don Huffines 
Alan West uh, coming at Abbott from the right. Uh, I mean, from the polling, it really doesn't look like there has been, you know, actual major support that has been garnered for them. And it's looking like Abbott is probably going to get out of that runoff. Um, Kate, Patrick, what are you guys seeing there? I mean, it, from where I stand as the higher ed reporter, um, <laughs> Abbott's having a, like a slightly easy time of it. You know, he has, it doesn't seem like he's going to face a runoff. He's, you know, even if Huffines and West are kind of, you know, as we reported this week, kind of working almost as a team to kind of push him to the right, it doesn't seem like it's, it's working um, in the polls. You know, and he, Abbott was able to really avoid potential controversies, you know, leading up to the primaries, the power stayed on during that winter storm. And so he, you know, it, things have been pretty okay for him. He's endorsed by Trump and has been able to kind of, you know, he's even leaving, leading Beto right now will remain to be seen when it gets to the, the general election, what that race is like. But I think he's kind of smooth sailing for, from where I stand. No news is good news in, in that respect. But Patrick, how, how has Abbott um, been able to achieve that? I mean, it did seem like at some points last year, um, it did seem like there was some like fury from, from the right side of, of, of Abbott, uh, that he wasn't doing things right. He wasn't handling things well. People were upset about COVID uh, mandates, stuff like that. How has Abbott managed to avoid making any more faux pas, I guess, or giving these guys any fuel? Well, you just said it right there. He, he's managed to not really give these guys any more fuel because he's continued to move to the right throughout this uh, primary cycle, especially over the past year. And I know that us as being as politically engaged that we are and some of the activists being as politically engaged as they are, you know, they can point to some of his moves to the right over the past year and say, oh, this is cynical. He didn't pat, you know, he's, you know, he's not a leading indicator on this. He's just playing catch up. But to the average, you know, even Republican primary voter, they see him out there. And they see him, you know, largely on, on the right side of the issues that they care about and moving even farther to the right. And so I think it's, it's actually a pretty simple answer that he has just moved to the right. He's kept up with the electorate. And yes, you can make the, the argument that it's been uh, cynical and politically advantageous. But I don't think the average primary voter is getting into the weeds on, you know, his history on some of these issues or is really that receptive to some of the more nuanced, you know, technical arguments that a Don Huffines is making about why didn't Abbott support this bill or why didn't he champion this bill at this certain moment in the legislature. I think to the average voter, it just looks like Abbott is on the right side of the issues. And so I think that's um, that's part of the reason why he's in such a comfortable position in this primary. Yeah. Now, now one one race that hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention is the railroad commissioner uh, race, even though um, that's probably one of the most important ones, given the events of last year and the, and the February freeze and, and the blackouts because of their regulation of uh, the, the, the energy industry. Um, it got a lot more attention, I think, last week when Sarah Stogner, one of the candidates for railroad commissioner, uh, put out a video and she's uh, almost almost naked on this pump jack um and and it got a lot of attention and she's made comments of like well i'm actually a very qualified candidate and i've been trying to run on the issues for months and nobody's paid attention and now i make this like five second video on tiktok and now everybody's coming and asking me questions about this uh, patrick can you talk a little bit about sort of that race and obviously when christian's in it and sort of what that is looking like and what shape, how that's shaping up and maybe why there hasn't been that much attention on, on that race. 
Sure. Well, these these what I would call down ballot statewide primaries are, are always hard to get people to really care about. And especially for something like the Railroad Commission, which, as we know, is a misnomer. A misnomer is, you know, it's it regulates the oil and gas industry. You'd never know that from the name Railroad Commission unless you're highly engaged right. in Texas politics like the three of us are. Uh, so it's always hard to draw attention to these races. And so it does not surprise me that, you know, something like uh, a candidate, you know, being uh, mostly naked, you know, filming themselves mostly naked on a pump jack would suddenly uh, zero in a lot of attention on this race. And so it's always hard to draw people in. Um, you know, it's always hard to attach this rail a railroad commissioner race to some of the, the national issues that get people's attention beyond just talking about protecting the oil and gas industry in Texas from, you know, crazy liberals who want to, you know, yeah. abolish it or yeah. whatever. Cr right? Critical race doesn't really fit into the railroad right. commissioner right. race right. all that much. You know, there, there are statewide races like governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general that you could really lay layer over neatly onto the statewide and national issue set, right? Because they those offices have brought enough of a view that you could credibly talk about why the lieutenant governor would care about critical race theory, for example. Um, it's a little harder to layer some of these farther down ballot statewide primaries on top of those familiar statewide and national issue sets. And so it doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> that yeah. this and I think I, I think your point is, is true, like because the misnomer, you look at that on the ballot and you say, well, they're, they're regulating railroads. Like, what do I care? Like, I don't even care about that. And even if, it, so you might not even get past that part, but then if you do get past that part and you realize that they regulate the energy industry uh, and natural gas, and and then you're like, well, now I got to learn all this other stuff about that. It's, it's right. very technical. And like, I don't know how many voters, you know, want to get that deep into the issue. So so it is hard, but there, there are a lot of candidates in that race, uh, Patrick. Um, and so, I mean, when there's that many candidates in the race, you had a major event like the February freeze. I mean, what does that do for the incumbent? It's got, it's got to make it a little tougher, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that railroad commissioner primaries, um, you know, there, there tends to be, they tend to draw from folks who believe, who are from the industry and believe that because of their personal experience and professional experience that they can do it better than the incumbent. Um, you know, Wayne Christian's a former state rep, um, you know, former state, you know, conservative state lawmaker, um, you know, is more of kind of a politician um, than anything else uh, at, you know, in, in the eyes of some of his competitors. And so it doesn't necessarily surprise me there's a crowd of primary. I think if there's a through line between his challengers, it's not necessarily, I'm more conservative than him. It's, it's, I come from the oil industry and I have more day-to-day -day hands on experience with this. And I want to go to the railroad commission, put that to use. And so sometimes these railroad commissioner primaries don't necessarily break down uh, along some of those neat ideological lines that happen in say like congressional races or other statewide primaries. But yeah. even to what, even, even to your point, uh, James, about how people just, it's so much for people to even learn, you know, looking at the polling with Christian being the incumbent, he still only was getting 9%, like 75% of people had no idea who they were going to vote for yet, which I think speaks to the fact that people just do not pay attention to yeah. what's happening in this. And for, for an incumbent to have nine percent like that that speaks to like your lack of a name recognition or people are unhappy with you so i would not be surprised to to see that one potentially go to a runoff especially when there's so many candidates in there so that'll be an interesting one to watch i think in my opinion um patrick you brought up congress and congressional races what are some of the races that that you're looking at there we've got obviously a couple of new districts but there's also some competitive ones um uh obviously in the state, what are the ones you, you're looking out for? 
Yeah, there are three or four congressional primaries that I would say rise above the rest. I think the most closely watched one is Henry Cuellar's primary, Democrat in Laredo. Um, you know, he's long been, uh, you know, one of the most moderate Democrats uh, in the House and Congress. Um, he's facing his 2020 challenger again, Jessica Cisneros. She came within a few points of beating him last time. She's running again with all the same national progressive support. Um, obviously, the race took on a, a whole new level of drama in January when the FBI raided his home in Laredo. We don't know what they were investigating. He's denied wrongdoing. Um, but that race is definitely, I think, number one in the state, at least for congressional primaries. Um, behind that, you have a really interesting Republican proxy war going on in the 8th Congressional District, where it's an open seat because the Republican incumbent, Kevin Brady, is retiring. Um, there are nine, I think, nine or 11 Republicans running to replace him, but the, the proxy war has really centered on Morgan Luttrell, uh, who's a former Navy SEAL, Christian Collins, who's a young political operative, um, Morgan Luttrell has the backing of Rick Perry, Dan Patrick, the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is effectively the political arm of House Republican leadership. Christian Collins has the backing of the political arm of the House Freedom Caucus, uh, Ted Cruz, and some, some of the most kind of lightning rod MAGA warriors in Congress, like Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, you know, it, it's really just a, a huge tribal slugfest. These guys don't necessarily have a lot of ideological differences, but they've attached themselves uh, to endorsers and supporters who have very different philosophies on how to fight in Washington and how to get things done or not get things done in Washington. And so it is kind of an early test for House Republican leadership, um, you know, as they try to take the majority in November, um, you know, this seat is not going to change parties in November, but you could get a, there's two very different kind of Republicans running here, I think. And so they want to make sure they get the right kind of Republicans uh, for when they cap recapture the majority. And this race is, I think, exhibit A in that. Kate, is there anything you're looking out for in terms of congressional races or any of the state statewide races? Um, I mean, I was also interested in the Cuellar race, but also, you know, I'm watch. I'm interested to see if Greg Kassar can um, avoid a runoff to see if he, uh, in his race, I do live in his district. I, I anecdotally, uh, my entire neighborhood is full of his signs. Um, it, he's like yeah, all over same the here. place. I'm also in his district. And yeah, they, they, there's the yard sign, the yard sign game. Obviously, people say yard signs don't don't win elections, but the yard sign right. game is is very, I think, indicative, at least in, it sounds like in our neighborhoods. Yeah, I'm in uh, Texas 35 too, which is great. We got three people in Texas 35. Two awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Not a Texas, Texas 35 caucus here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that I mean that is kind of most the most interesting to me um, as right now on the Congress. Yeah, so. it, it is. That is a very interesting race, just because Eddie Rodriguez has been such a long time state house representative. You would figure that he would have very, very strong support, um, not only in terms of endorsements, but just from voters who have known him for so long. I mean, he's he's been in, in the state house since like the 2000s. So his name recognition should be high. It should be, you know, at, at least giving him an advantage. But I mean, the, 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 the issue is that Greg Kassar also has high name recognition, not only in Austin, but in other parts of the, of the, of the district. Hayes County is an Austin media market. And so him being an Austin city council candidate often gets covered down there in Hayes County. And then he is sort of a, a big figure. Um, and so that San Antonio portion of the district, Patrick, I think you covered his appearance with AOC. So he, he's getting a lot of 
attention from not just people who w- would know him here, but he's he's getting a lot of attention. If you want to talk about that. Yeah, and he's done a good job over the years of building a little bit of political uh, credibility in the San Antonio part of the district. He's been down to San Antonio as a council member to fight for paid sick leave in San Antonio. He helped recently, uh, he worked on behalf of two new progressive members of the city council in San Antonio. So, um, you know, I don't know how long he was, uh, you know, planning to run for this congressional district, but he definitely made some moves in, in recent years that set him up well for this run. And like, like Kate said, the big question now is whether he can just win this thing outright or whether he's going to go to a runoff where some of these intra-party divides could intensify. Um, I was going to add, we have time for one more congressional race I could shout out as well. Sure. I was going to add Texas, the Texas three Republican primary, I think is getting, if you look at the spending is getting pretty hot here at the end. This is Congressman Van Taylor, a Republican from Collin County. Um, he was in a uh, competitive general election fight last cycle. He ran ads touting himself as, as Mr. Bipartisan. His district got redrawn to be more Republican. And now he's facing uh, four primary challengers who are attacking him for voting for the January 6th commission uh, earlier last year. And he's having to run TV ads talking about how (laughs) he's a really strong Republican, pro-Trump Republican and everything. (laughs) So for this guy, it's like this just crazy case of whiplash going from his race last cycle where he was Mr. Bipartisan um, to running, you know, to running these ads where he's a, you know, MAGA warrior. Um, And so it's been fascinating to watch that. And it, it, it's really interesting that the vote that's at the center of all this is his vote for the January 6th commission, which was actually different than the January 6th committee, which is now in the headlines. But to his primary challengers, they're benefiting from folks not making that distinction. They think that, you know, they're sowing the perception that Van Taylor voted for this January 6th com- uh, committee put together by Nancy Pelosi that's, you know, now making all these headlines about subpoenaing people and stuff like that. And so, it's gotten really contentious at the end, I think, and you've seen uh, outside groups spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to shore up Van Taylor. I assume they want him to win this without a runoff because things could get really nasty in a runoff. Maybe Trump could get involved in a runoff against him. So that's the big question. Yeah. What a turn of events that all of a sudden, yeah. Mr. being Mr. Bipartisan is, is, is the opposite of what you want to be. Uh, I, I think we're pretty close to wrapping up here. I will make a plug that, listen, I know that all TripCast listeners are really good citizens. They're early voters. They probably have already voted by the time they hear this. But if you haven't yet, uh, we have a voter guide on Texas Tribune website. And so you like plug in your address there and it tells you all the races that you're involved in. Our team put it together. Very, very helpful stuff if you need some, you know, just some help uh, figuring out some of your races. Um, But other than that, I think we'll leave it there. We'll have a lot more Tuesday night. We'll be in the office eating pizza, eating something, uh, tracking all these races and and seeing which ones turn out the most interesting. Um, Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our sponsors, uh, Texas State Technical College, the Beer Alliance of Texas, Lone Star College, and Methodist Healthcare Ministries. Kate and Patrick, thank you so much. And we'll catch you guys next time. Do I have to talk you into it?